Well, good after morning, everyone. It is good to see you. Thank you for coming back again today. We're glad to see you. Uh, a few things I want to take care of before we have prayer. Uh, on the back table, we have a few handouts for you, a few things for you to use if you'd like to. Uh, these index cards are for you to write your questions down. If you have any questions, you write it down here, and then you can turn it into one of us, and uh, we'll have a, a time of, of question and answer. Is that Friday, Ron? Friday. Uh, so turn those in ahead of time, and if, if your question's not on a card, it won't be answered. So if you have a question, make sure you write it down on a card and give it to one of us. Uh, second, we have these sheets of paper. This is just for you to take notes on if you'd like. Uh, there are pencils back there as well if you don't have a pen already. Uh, if, if you want to listen more carefully and then go back later and hear the seminar again, you can do that by going to the conference website and all or the, the app as well, I believe. But all of these sessions are recorded and you'll be able to go back and, and listen and pause and take notes and process. Uh, so that's, that's available for you. And after Mike's presentation yesterday, you may really benefit from that because Mike is just so fast. Yeah. Ron's not that fast. Ron's a Southerner, so he takes his time. So anyway, those recordings are for you to use. Also, I want to make sure that you are aware of Romance at the Ranch. How many of you have ever attended a Romance at the Ranch at Nasoka Pines? Wow. Well, this is a great opportunity for the rest of you. Uh, the second weekend of February is the English-speaking Romance at the Ranch. It's a marriage retreat that we have every year at Nasoka Pines Ranch. Uh, we bring in each year a different guest couple to, to present. And th these marriage retreats are not just for marriages in trouble. These are for marriages that are humming right along uh, and those are who fit a few speed bumps along the way that everybody is blessed by the retreats. So the English speaking is the, the second weekend of February and the Spanish speaking retreat is the third weekend of February. So I'd encourage you to do that. The feedback that we get from couples every year is that um, it's just great to, to fine tune what you're doing right, get some helpful tools for things that you're struggling with, and everybody leaves. Okay, most people leave um, encouraged and, and, and feeling much better about their relationship. And uh, we found that just going every year is just like pressing a reset and and improving things. So um, if you're interested in that, uh, you can talk to us afterwards or or keep um, an eye out for the communications that we'll send out starting around October on that. Oh, one last thing that's on the table 
back there is this handout. It's the same handout as yesterday. If you, you got a copy yesterday, it's the same thing. But it gives you a history of coming out ministries. Um, Mike Carducci is not the only uh, leader of, of coming out ministries. Ron Woolsey is one of the what, five co-founders of coming out ministries. And they have a, a large team working around the world. This gives you some of that information and also shares with you some of the resources that they have available. Um, some fantastic stuff. All right. The rest of the time, that's yours, yes. Unless you want to use this one. Okay. Yes. Okay. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for Ron, for the way that you've made him and the way that you are using him to expand your kingdom and to bless people. I ask for your anointing on him as he speaks today. Let your words be on his heart and on his lips. Anoint our ears as we listen. May the words that you speak through him be a blessing to us, to help us and to help us to help others. We ask for your presence here with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, are we on? Yes, okay. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm Ron Woolsey, and I'm one of the other senior speakers. In fact, I am so senior, from the very beginning, they've called me Moses. But, and I couldn't figure that out. Is it because of my age or because I've been in the ministry the longest? I think it's because I've been in the ministry the longest. But uh, who knows? Um, before I get started, I wanted to let you know that... Uh, we have a number of resources over in the the books the bookstore, and uh, we have a number of DVD series we've done with Dare to Dream Network, with uh, uh, White Horse Media with Steve Wahlberg. Uh, I did a series with Sean Boonstra when he was with It Is Written called Compassion Without Compromise. Um, I've written three books, and uh, and the reason I'm letting you know is because I forget to tell people my books were started out under a pen name. When I first, when I was first asked to write my book, the publisher urged me to use a pen name for my protection. And I said, why do I need protection? And they said, well, we had another author, pastor, write a book about this issue. And um, the militant gay community tracked him down, burned his house to the ground. And then they would follow him around and protest and picket at the churches and scream obscenities and terrorize the children and all that. We want you to be protected. So when I was first asked to write this book, I was given four weeks to turn in a manuscript by the review to the review and Herald so that they could publish it three years later. <laughs> I thought that was backwards, but anyway. Um, it took me longer to come up with a pen name than to write the book, and that's a fact. I wanted a message. If I was going to pick a name, I wanted a message in the name. So the first book is called That Kind Can Never Change, Can They? It's my own personal story. The title was actually given to me by a pastor, and he wasn't trying to give me a title. He was denouncing me. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, That Kind Can Never Change. And then I said, Can They? And the, it's one man's struggle to understand and overcome his homosexuality. 
The pen name I came up with eventually was Victor J. Adamson, and I'll leave it up to you to figure it out. But one reason I wanted a good pen name was because I was contracted to be on uh, radio talk shows around the country for three years. And um, so there's a message in the name. And for three years, they were all calling me on the phone or in the studio, Victor, Victor, Victor. See, that's positive reinforcement. We need positive reinforcement, right? So then they urged me to come up with a website because there'd be a lot of communication because of the book. And so we came up with victorjadamson.com. And sure enough, I got questions every day for years that I would post what I called a question of the week. Uh, each week I'd pick out a question that I felt was really good for everybody and I would edit it and, and make it really uh, readable because you, you wouldn't believe some of the questions. Um, after 15, 20 years of that, Remnant Publications came to me and wanted to publish another book. And so we put... We compiled all of that and um, came out with a book called Straight Answers. That's Notice it's A-I-T. It means from the Word of God. Straight Answers to the Gay Question. It's comprehensive and it's just fascinating reading because of the types of questions that I got all of those years. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. My newest book is called Navigating the Storms. Uh, Navigating the Storms uh, was initiated because of another book that has been circulating around the NAD and now around the world called Guiding Families. Have you heard of that book? Guiding Families of LGBT plus Loved Ones. Across the top it says Adventist Edition. What does that tell you? It's not an Adventist book. They've made an Adventist edition of a non-Adventist book and a non-Adventist author, and that is being circulated by some elements within the denomination uh, that are trying to actually get our churches to posture shift. Posture shift means shift away from the biblical view and become affirming. That's posture shift. We believe that we should encourage the sinner to shift his posture to become more biblical. It's an opposite approach. So I was asked from uh, people from various levels of our denomination to come up with a biblical alternative to this non-Adventist Adventist edition of a non-Adventist book, if you got that. Anyway, I'm confusing myself. Anyway, so this is what I came up with. And across the top, just to make sure people understood, I wrote, it's guided by the Word of God, true science and research, and the voice of experience and reason. So it's a very biblical alternative to the other book. And these are all, oh, and that's written by Ron Woolsey, not Victor J. Adamson. Uh, but anyway, no, I'm not multi-personalities or bipolar, though some may question. Uh, but these books and all of that are in the ABC it is ABC. Don't you call it ABC here? Okay, so go check that out. We have some free literature there. We have a number of pocket tracks. We have six different pocket tracks. Um, we've each written a pocket track, and there's one about the ministry as well. And they come in packs of 50 or 100 for distribution or to put in your church uh, distribution um displays and all of that, but there also, you can have some free samples of all of that. 
But yeah, check out our resources. We, we really want to get our resources into every church and every school library. Why? Because when I was growing up in the church, and Michael will say the same thing, when we were all growing up in the church, there was no discussion about these issues in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There were no resources and no one to talk to. And had I been able to stumble across something that was redemptive in the college library where I was studying theology, it would have been so helpful. Instead, I stumbled across something that was pro-gay. And that was back in the olden days, as my son says. Dad, that's back in the olden days. Well, it's just, yeah, it was the last millennium. It was in the 1900s, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but I found something that was pro-gay, and it, it, it let me know I was not the only person in the world struggling with these issues. And from there, I went and checked out some gay places and fell headlong. So um, we really want our resources to be in church libraries and school libraries because... I think that there are many people that are struggling, that if they came across something like this, they could privately research and find answers without exposing themselves. And I just think it'd be very helpful because, frankly, in a nutshell, our material is a Seventh-day Adventist message from the, LG, from the perspective of someone who has benefited from it, from an unchangeable lifestyle. Does that make sense? You've all heard once gay, always gay. That's a lie. You've heard born that way. That's a lie. Um, and basically what we're doing is applying the Seventh-day Adventist message, which means the Bible message of the gospel, to what is considered to be an impossible situation. And friends, it works. We have the answer as Seventh-day Adventists if we will accept it and not try to shy away from it and shift our posture, right? Um, so I want to get into my presentation uh, now about uh, the word of my testimony. But I, I did first want to say, you know, coming out ministries, when, when you see the word coming out, what do you think of? I mean, the phrase has been kind of... Well... <laughs> It's been, what, like trademarked or patented or something coming out of the closet, gay and proud. Uh, I'm working on an article right now about what God thinks about pride. Um, but when you hear the word pride, it's like they've trademarked that name. When you hear the word pride, people just automatically think of rainbow colors and gay pride parades, you know, and the LGBT issue. Coming out is a biblical term. And so we're about redeeming biblical terms. I want to write a book. Don't anyone take my idea. I'm trademarking the idea before I write the book. I want to write a book called Reclaiming the Rainbow because God created the rainbow. And it's a beautiful thing and a beautiful symbol. And it's a rainbow of promise. I already have an article, so I've got a good start on the book called A Rainbow of Promises, and, and I collect promises and I put them in this ever-growing article. But um, the, the world tends to take good words and give them new definitions that are perverted, that are corrupted. 
that are compromising coming out biblically. I mean, 1 Peter 2.9 is a text that we really like to use about coming out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, that's the text we use for our, our logo. Another one, I don't know, there are probably a lot of them, but I've thought of three of them right off the bat, where we're told to come out from among them and be ye separate. See, come out. It's a, it's a biblical term. And of course, we all know which one. Yes, Revelation 18, come out of her, my people. Does that apply to the gay community? I'll tell you, if you want to see the epitome of confusion, it's the LGBT community. Did you know? I just say LGBT plus anymore. I got tired of the acronym growing. Do you know the acronym now is like 2SLGBTQQIAAPPP plus and growing? I've got, I've got pictures where they're advertising training sessions for educators using that acronym. So I'm just, I'm not going any farther than LGBT+. That's far enough for me. In fact, quite often I just use the word gay to cover all of it because the acronym keeps growing. But yes, this is now a global culture. It is a global community. In Matthew 28, we have the Gospel Commission to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, you know, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And God has his people in the gay community. Would you agree with that? I know because I was in the gay community and desperately looking for ways out, and the Lord gave me my answers. I basically, I'm getting ahead of myself in my testimony, but I basically studied my way out using what? The Seventh-day Adventist material, the Bible, spirit of prophecy. No therapy, no counseling, just going to the Word of God. Voila, I found all of my answers. That's why I write the book, Straight Answers to the Gay Question. It's all in the Word of God. And um, anyway, I know God loves gay people. He's not willing that any should perish. Any gay person should perish. I get accused of being homophobic. I think that's such... Such, um, what should I say? It's so unfair. I've come out of the gay community. How could I be homophobic? I'm not afraid of gay people or I wouldn't be doing this, right? I'm not afraid of the issue or I wouldn't be doing this. So I coined a new word. I'm homoagopic. And I think God is homoagopic. Again, not willing that any gay person should perish either as well as anyone else. So yes, our message of come out of her, my people, goes to the LGBT community as well. When I was in that life for years, I had a very good friend who came to me, and uh, I'm still jumping ahead in my testimony, but I was in the world with a degree in theology <laughs> that I never used. And I didn't have my own answers, but this friend came to me and he said, Ron, man, I wish I knew there was a way out. I'd do anything to get out of this. I never wanted to be gay. It's just, I guess, who I'm born to be, and I, I guess it's just who I am. I had no words for that poor person. Why? I had no answers for myself. And I have been haunted by that, you know, over the years, and have prayed that the Lord will send someone to show that man his way out, because I found my way out through the Word of God and and I hope he finds his way out. He had unwanted same-sex attractions. And I truly believe 
that if people love truth, they want truth, God is going to make sure they're exposed to it. And so that's one of the purposes of our ministry. I want to launch into my testimony here in Revelation 12, 11, We have a very favorite passage of scripture that we all use. They overcame him, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, by the blood of the lamb, which would be the story of Jesus, right? We overcome through Jesus, the blood of the lamb. And it says, by the word of their testimony. And I used to think, what does that mean? How do I overcome him by the word of my testimony? And as I mulled that over for a while, I realized, you know, there's someone else that can probably preach the gospel better than I can. You know who that is? Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, right? Light representing truth. Satan, Satan, you know, he's got a photographic memory. He could preach the gospel. I know that he can do that because the text goes on to say, therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. Now we've been, we, we all know of these big mega churches that have thousands of people attending the churches and hundreds of people come weeping to the altar to give their hearts to Jesus because of the blood of the lamb story and the emotion and and wanting to love and give their hearts to Jesus. And then I've heard people that have gone through that route and they've gone to the evangelist under conviction and asked, what about the law of God? What about the Ten Commandments? What about the Fourth Commandment? Ah, oh, don't worry about the law of God. It was nailed to the cross. You don't need to worry about the Fourth Commandment. Nine commandments out of ten is good enough. And it doesn't matter which day you keep as long as you keep one. In fact, we should keep all days holy. Well, and that's a violation of the ten of the fourth commandment because the commandment is embedded with the words six days shalt thou labor. That's a part of the commandment. You can't keep every day holy or you'd be lazy. God doesn't want us to do that. So anyway, what's the word of their testimony? Their testimony is the same testimony that the serpent, Satan spoke through the serpent in the Garden of Eden, thou shalt not surely die right? So the word of our testimony is very important. You can imagine Satan doesn't have a testimony. He cannot demonstrate through his life the power of Jesus Christ to recreate to God's original plan. You and I can, and we're called to do that. So I'm going to share my story. And of course, it begins with my cute little parents, uh, the mom and dad. Dad was 17 when he first married. Mom was his second wife. Anyone here 17? Really? All right. Are you married? Good. Good for you. Anyone here used to be 17? All right. You know what I'm talking about. 17, my dad was married. 18, who's 18? 18, he was a daddy. And he fathered six children. And he was busy from that day forward trying to provide for his family from the day he got married. And um, his first wife divorced him when he was in the Navy during the war um, to marry another man that was not overseas or whatever. And um, so my dad lost his first uh, wife. And then there were two children. So I have a half-brother and sister through them. But then... Dad, after after he got out of the Navy, he went to Southern Matrimonial College, they called it back then, uh, Southern Missionary College, Southern Adventist University. I don't know why they call it Southern Adventist University. I looked at that and said, Sal, are you kidding? 
I mean, that sounds like Arkansas. I mean, the, the Razorbacks are our, our mascot in Arkansas. Anyway, so I, I liked SMC a lot better, but um, they met there. Mom was a freshman and dad was uh, an older freshman when he came there. I don't think they made it through the first semester. I mean, they fell head over heels in love. He proposed to her. All she, all she could do was giggle. She was so timid and shy. They were married. She was 19 when they married, and he was 25. Um, and within five years, they had four more children. So uh, I, was, I was the second of that brood. Uh, I'm number four of six children. Well, Dad, um, being raised in Mississippi, uh, in that area, he became a dairy farmer. And uh, so he spent a lot of his years working in a dairy. And he, while I was very young, he moved the family to this dairy farm by Haley, Mississippi, where he ran the farm there. And, and it was at that place. And, you know, my parents wanted to raise their children in the country. And we loved being raised in the country. It's nothing like being raised in the country. Um, but you know, the devil knows where you are, whether you're in the city or in the country. And I believe the devil has a customized plan for every one of our lives from the moment we're conceived. Now, God has a plan before that, because he says, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you, right? Satan knows when you're conceived. And I think he sets things in motion because he's a kidnapper. He likes to kidnap kids. And the earlier he can get kids, the better. I was four years old on this farm when I was sexually molested by a farmhand working for my father. And I have to tell you, uh, up to that day, I had never had a sexual thought in my head. From that day forward, I never lived a day without sexual, being sec, uh, having sexual thoughts and fantasies and wild imaginations. From the day I was molested, I was sexualized. And I know how how that messed up my life. Now you've got schools doing the same thing, well, not molesting technically, but sexualizing children the age of four. And I know it's derailing them just like it derailed me. I wasn't old enough and mature enough physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually to process sex, you know? Um, so it left me very confused and I didn't run and tell mommy and daddy what happened to me because I felt guilty, even at four. I knew that what happened was not normal, it wasn't right, and I wasn't going to tattle on myself. So I internalized it, and, and I marvel that at that age that I didn't run and tell mom and dad what happened, but for some reason I was unable to do that. And so I was not able to be... Um, comforted through it or and worked through it. I internalized it. And a four-year-old child, like I said, does not know how to process this. So it left me derailed and warped in my thinking. And so I grew up, my only introduction to sex, sexual behavior was with an older man. Uh, I'm well older than I was, you know. Um, and so that to me, that's what festered in my head until I was old enough to hear about birds and bees. And then, you know, I had years of thinking in the wrong direction by then. So I, I didn't overcome that. I didn't know how to deal with that. So after that, shortly after that, I developed a bedwetting problem. And my parents said that 
all six of us children had been totally potty trained by the time we were two. Uh, all of a sudden, Ronnie is digressing. Uh, I mean, regressing. <laughs> I digress too. But anyway, I was regressing. And dad thought I was being lazy. Now remember, dad was 17 when he married. He was a child raising children. My mother told me years later, your daddy was the most difficult child I had to raise. <laughs> dad, we found out later how much he deeply loved all of his family and very was very protective of my mother and uh, just so in love with her till the day he passed away. But he didn't know how to discipline properly, and he judged me as being lazy. And so he began to punish me whenever I would have wet the bed or have an accident. That only exacerbated the problem to where I lost control of my bladder publicly on the playground, at school, and all of those things. At the age of nine, they took me to a physician to find out what was wrong. And he uh, assured them there was nothing wrong with my bladder or my kidneys or anything. He said... Folks, the kid's just being lazy. So my dad doubled down. And so I grew up being in a very abusive environment. My dad being very physically abusive with his discipline. And that wasn't working. So he began to tease me and mock me and, and do that in front of the family. And so it became more and more public. So then my brothers picked up on that. They started doing the same thing. Can you see what was happening to me at a very early age? I was being alienated from my father and from my gender because I could not measure up. My brothers didn't have a wedding problem. They weren't abused by my father. They seemed to meet all of his expectations. I could never measure up. I was not accepted. I didn't feel loved. And so I began to be alienated. At the age of five, I started playing the piano, which got me more ridicule in Mississippi in the olden days. Like I said, boys didn't play the piano, only girls did. At least that's what they thought. So that only added to my being teased and and ridiculed. Um, and so I grew up with all of this confusion in my head. However, even as a child, I learned to mask all of that. I was a master at masking it. And Playing the piano at school got me attention, got me accolades. And then my brother, who was just a year older, he was not only a year older, he was a year stronger, a year better looking, a year smarter, uh, you know, a year. He's still a year older, and I tell him so. You're just a year older. But anyway, he could sit in class all day long and never crack a book and make straight A's. And I just didn't think that was fair. You know, some things just ain't right, you know, and he'd sit there all day, just goof off. And he was a school jock and popular with everybody. And well, being a year apart in age, we had sibling rivalry and I would not be outdone. So to make straight A's, I had to study, which really worked in my favor. So I found that being at the top of the class and being musical got me attention and accolades at school um, and even somewhat in the family that I was lacking before. So it was uh, offsetting to some extent. By the age of 12, I was a church pian pianist at our little church in Mississippi. And, um, and I was a spiritual child, even though I had all this confusion in my head about my sexual attractions and identity. 
I was spiritual. Does that make sense to any of you? Can you be very, very spiritual and still be targeted by Satan? Or maybe especially targeted by Satan? All those years I was spiritual. I loved the Lord and I loved church. I was baptized at the age of nine and, and very active in church and, and all of those things. Um, and uh, then going on through school, I graduated from the eighth grade. That's not eighth grade. I'm just flipping through some pictures, but I'm trying to race through. I graduated from the eighth grade as valedictorian, went on to high school, graduated there, valedictorian. Um, and being a Christian young man, I never had to prove myself, you know, sexually, right? Because Christians don't have sex until marriage. So just like all the other boys, I had girlfriends. We could go to banquets. We could go on dates. We could pass notes. and We could do all that stuff, you know. And I, I began to feel more and more normal. I mean, I could blend in. I should say it that way. But still, every, I mean, as I grew older, this, this same-sex attraction just grew ever stronger. I had to drop out of college in my sophomore year because of finances, and um, I didn't know what I wanted to major in anyway. I took a lot of music and a lot of general ed because I figured I would go that direction. But I was trying to earn my way through school making. You probably never heard of such a thing, but they're called Nutty Bars, Little Debbie Nutty Bars. That was me. I was making those things, and I couldn't keep up with my bill. My parents couldn't uh, afford tuition. They moved to College Dale to provide room and board. And I have to say that Dad grew up a lot along the way, just like the rest of us kids. And so he was making progress in his maturity, too, spiritually and every other way. Um, but anyway, I had to drop out of college that sophomore year. And very quickly, I was drafted into the military uh, during the Vietnam era. And I was able to go to special training because of another job I had picked up along the way as a surgical assistant and I was able to train as a surgical tech. And I thought with that kind of training, I would certainly be sent to Vietnam. I didn't want to go, but I figured I would. But I didn't go to Vietnam. For some reason, the military sent me to South Korea. And I didn't even know we were still there. But that's where I went <clears throat> for my uh, overseas tour. In South Korea, I found in, in Seoul, Korea, there was a mission compound where the Adventist GIs would converge on Sabbath to get away from the compound, the, the base. And uh, so we could spend the Sabbath. We'd go down Friday afternoon, and we didn't have to come back to our base until Sunday morning. And so I uh, would go down there to spend the Sabbath, and it was a really blessed thing to be off base and to be among Adventists. And then there were a bunch of student missionaries there that I met that were from La Sierra College, and they were teaching English in the language school there in Seoul, Korea. It was a new program. They had like 1,400 students at a time, a big operation. And I got involved with them on Sabbath, playing uh, the piano for their uh, Sabbath school and church services. And I thought, it sure would be neat to be a part of this program. I really was fascinated by it. So when I was being discharged from the military, I was able to be discharged in South Korea and stay there and join that missionary group. Um, 
I thought it was kind of funny that, I mean, all those Southern California students talked kind of funny, you know. Um, they're teaching English, and I was the only one that could speak proper Southern English. <laughs> and so, you know, when, no matter how much you enjoy your, <clears throat> your, your work or whatever, don't you look for ways to make things more interesting and fun? And so I decided one day, I'm going to teach my Korean students to speak with a Southern accent. And we had a lot of fun with that in class. I didn't realize that they were going to take it outside of class until one day I heard them between classes going down the hall. <laughs> Hi, y'all, they were saying, Koreans. Hi, y'all, y'all come back now, you hear? And <laughs> bye, y'all. I thought that was just hilarious. I never thought they'd take it outside the class. But I had so much fun with my students. And it was shortly after that that I was asked by the director of the school to go south. And I mean really south. Uh, south Thailand. <laughs> there was a, a fairly new school down in South Thailand, and they wanted me to go down there and be the director of this school down there. And um, so I went to Thailand, and Hajai, Thailand, and there I met this wonderful family. <laughs> and there are two of them are sitting right here on the second row today. <laughs> and Dr. And Mrs. Van Arsdale. And uh, they were running uh, the mission compound there and kind of in charge of the school. And I was working with them. And I was so impressed with, with you folks, I mean, in Thailand. Um, I thought, you know, I want to do this when I grow up. I want to be a medical missionary. And so I really got into the, into the program there in, uh, there in Thailand. And Korea could be very cold in the winter, but Thailand could be very hot. That's my little dog, Squirt. And we took several showers a day just to keep cool. It was so hot there. Um, I, uh, I had an accordion over there. I think I sold it to Linda, your daughter. And then I went to S Singapore and bought a Scandelli. But anyway, um, I put that accordion on the back of Judy, one of the teachers there, and Julie sometimes, and, and we just go off into the jungle somewhere and do a branch Sabbath school. And, and then every year they had this water festival. They told me that there are only two seasons in Thailand, hot, I mean, wet and dry, always hot. And so when the wet season started, they have water festivals and they douse everybody with water. Uh, this is Julie, remember Julie, and we were sharing a coconut there, a coconut water coconut milk. Here's one of the one of our graduating classes there in Thailand. I just really, really thoroughly enjoyed missionary work. So when I left Thailand, I went back to Southern Missionary College with the ambition to be like Dr. Van Arsdale and trained to be a medical missionary. And so I enrolled in pre-med and <clears throat> theology. But, you know, even though I was that very spiritual person and very spiritual young person, I had made many, many good choices in my life in spite of all of my confusion. I came back with a confusion in my head was just with a vengeance. I just, I did not know how to resolve those issues, being a spiritual person, wanting to train to be a, a worker for the Lord, a missionary for the Lord, and all of this same-sex attraction, it just didn't make sense. So I came up with a solution, and I thought I was pretty brilliant. I decided 
that if I were to just get married, it would take care of everything. Now, you young people, <laughs> let me warn you. <laughs> marriage is not the solution to any problem. In fact, maybe some of you married people would agree. Marriage can be the beginning of woes. If you're not married to the right person for the right reason, with the blessing of God and with the right chemistry, you know, and I married a lovely student missionary. Yes, she's from Southern California, but I took her south to learn good English. And I, you know, she was a happy uh, Christian. I chose to have a Christian wife, to have a Christian home, to make Christian babies. We made two Christian babies, to have a Christian education, to train for Christian service, all of those things. And then I realized I've made a terrible mistake. I was more confused now than ever. Being married did not diminish my confusion. It only compounded it. And I realized that eventually I was going to be a big disappointment to my wife. And I was actually traumatized by the thought. But I continued on with my education. And as I was preparing for graduation, and don't laugh because all things do come back around. What goes around comes around. There again, my son just laughs his head off every time he sees my senior picture. But I said, you're going to look just like that one of these days. <clears throat> I was given a call to ministry to pastor in the Madison Campus Church, Madison Sanitarium Hospital over there in Tennessee. And I panicked because I was a small town Christian. I wasn't a big city Christian. And I, and I turned down the call. I said, listen, I have one more class to, to take in physics and I'm off uh, to medical school. So I turned down the call. Big problem. I didn't pray about it. That was a big mistake. I'm not, Dr. Van Arsdale, I'm not a medical missionary today. I'm not a physician. I'm a pastor. <laughs> That's what I was called to do in the first place. But no, I was going to be a medical missionary. Um, but I graduated, and uh, then I realized that in getting my degree in theology, with honors, by the way, I had lost my connection with the Lord. How do you do that? Can you believe that? Here's what I did. I began to rationalize. To get into medical school, I had to have an A average. To have an A average, I had to study very intensely. And so I rationalized every day in class. We have prayer before class, and we study Bible all day long. That'll do it. I gave up on my private devotions and didn't realize that by doing so, I was simply studying to answer the questions that the professors had in order to get the grade. I wasn't studying to feed my soul. And when I graduated, that was all over, and I had lost my connection with the Lord. And very soon after that, I had what I call my fall from grace. I was a weak Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and I did not have the wherewithal to avoid temptation. And I fell into homosexual behavior. I mean, it's like diving over a cliff. All those years I'd been making all of those good choices and right choices, being a spiritual person, and one mistake, and I was out of control. I just totally lost it. I was honest with my wife. You can imagine she was devastated. She had no clue 
that I was struggling. I'd never told a living soul what happened to me when I was four years old. Never told a living soul about the uh, struggle I had. I was repeatedly molested in grade school. I was molested in the military and never told anybody about it. I struggled all alone. But I'll tell you, when you are a fallen human being struggling against the temptations of a fallen supernatural being and you're not connected to the divine being, you're no match. And I was no match. I had nothing to keep me uh, from falling into that life. My um, wife was very forgiving. She loved me. She wanted to make our marriage work. She urged me to at least go to counseling with her and see if we couldn't save our marriage. And I owed her that. So we went to counseling. And that's where I ended up hearing this. They eventually counseled her, Mrs. Woolsey, you need to divorce this man and get on with your life. That kind can never change. And that was from Seventh-day Adventist pastors, Seventh-day Adventist counselors, Seventh-day Adventist psychiatrists. And praise God, they don't all think that way. But the ones we happened to go to left me hopeless. I turned my back on God. I was so angry and so bitter and resentful. If God cannot change me, I've been praying for that for years, then he's impotent rather than omnipotent. If he chooses not to change me, we've all heard we'll be sinning until Jesus comes, and then he'll change you. Well, then it's his fault I'm this way, right? If he can change me then, why can't he change me now? And if he chooses not to change me now, it's his fault, not mine. And so you can see, I went into the world angry, bitter, resentful against God. My father, at this point, I didn't realize he was living through me vicariously um, with, um, uh, with my degree in theology. found out he had always felt called to be a minister himself. When I graduated with a degree in theology, I was, uh, he had me on a pedestal you wouldn't believe. And when he found out, when we told him what was happening, he was devastated. He actually, shortly after that, had a massive heart attack and almost died. Um, the surgeons gave him five years to live if he would have surgery, and five years to live if he wouldn't have surgery. So he chose not to have surgery. <laughs> he and my mother chose to go to Uchi Pines and get involved in God's health message to see if God could give them more than five years. And we'll just leave it right there, leave a little cliffhanger right there for now. So I went into the world bitter, angry, resentful against God. This is, um, uh, at this point, I'm living in Southern California. The little boy in the red shirt was my son, graduating from the eighth grade in California. Um, I was able to, my wife took the children, moved to California. And so three years later, I followed out there. And so we had some time together, but not too much, because then she moved to Oregon, and I couldn't keep following her around the country. But anyway, as I went into the world, I was unchangeable and unreachable. I wouldn't go anywhere, listen to anything, read anything, talk to anyone, watch anything that had anything to do with religion. I was done with God. I was done with the church. I was done with religion. How many of you know someone like that? Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you have friends and or family members that are that way, that just seem to be absolutely unreachable. Well, I'm here to tell you that our God specializes in reaching the unreachable, 
and changing the unchangeable. And I did not bring a timepiece up here. I don't even know what time it is, but I've, I've, I have half an hour more. All right, we can do this. Okay. Because I want to spend the rest of the time talking about how God reaches the unreachable and changes the unchangeable. Because that's what it's all about, right? I don't like to go into detail about my gay life. It's a, suffice it to say I lived it. Um, here is some of my family, my dad and my mother, my sister, my little grandmother, lived most of her life in North Carolina. Um, my brother Jim, he was the one that was one year older, still is, and his wife. <laughs> and uh, I found out that my family, they loved me unconditionally and they prayed for me without ceasing. Um, here are the four of us with my, my mother's four children, and uh, all four of us within a five-year span. And uh, just, they, they're, they're such loving brothers and sisters. My parents would find a way to somehow get out to Southern California where I was living. Dad was totally disabled because of his heart attack. I mean, permanent heart damage. It was really bad. But somehow, with living on disability, they made it a point to get out to California almost every year to spend time with their prodigal son, me. And they stayed in my home. They loved me. They loved my friends. They visited with us. And, and they never condemned us, which was good. But we knew they never condoned our behavior. You see, there's a difference. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you to marry but then go and sin no more. He did not condone her behavior, but he didn't condemn. And we didn't feel condemnation. We didn't need to be told we were living in sin. We knew that. What we needed was to be loved, um, to have compassion and understanding, and uh, to have that influence of Jesus every once in a while in the home because my parents were reflecting Jesus' character uh, in my home. Okay, they loved me unconditionally. They prayed for me without ceasing. If you're taking notes, three points. They became forgetful. Well, every time they left my home, they tended to leave things behind. They just seemed to be forgetful. Um, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I mean, I remember one time I found this big, beautiful Bible under my pillow in my bed. Left behind, but it did have a loving note in it, right? So if you want to know how to reach your own loved ones, just, you know, think on these things. Another time, they left a nine-volume set. <laughs> on another visit, there was a five-volume set. I remember finding the story of redemption tucked away somewhere in my house. And then there was this little book called Steps to Christ, I knew what they were doing, and they knew what they were doing. They knew I would not receive anything. I was unreachable. So they just had to be forgetful and just, you know, leave it here and leave it there and whatever. I knew these were tokens of love. I didn't have a heart to throw any of them away, so I just tuck them in my little bookcase. I moved 15 times in 13 years in Southern California, and those books always went with me. I didn't have the heart to throw them away. Didn't read them. Didn't want to read them. But they were there. So after a number of years of this forgetfulness, and um, I, I like to refer to that as my left behind series. 
One night I had a dream and it was a horrible nightmare. Um, and uh, in that dream, it was like my life was passing before me, not from my childhood to the present, but my present life. I think, you know, as I look back on it, I really believe God was revealing to me what my life was like. And my life was so full of activity that I was constantly jamming the signal. I had no time to listen to any still small voice. There was never silence in my home. I had the TV going. And when I got home at night after work, I'd turn the TV on. When I went to bed, I turned the TV on at the foot of the bed. Because if I woke up in the middle of the night, I didn't want to have to get out of bed to turn it on. So I just left it on. That's how it was. So again, don't laugh. This is again the olden days. But I, I didn't do music in the world. I, no, I was trained in church music. I couldn't do that in nightclubs, so I took up dancing. And uh, I started out actually with ballroom dancing and became a ballroom dancing instructor. And then, then it came the disco era and then got into country western and clogging and it just went downhill, you know, from there. Um, but all of that was in my dream because I was doing something. I was, I was at a nightclub almost every night. Uh, because of that, I took up inline skating. I had done ice skating before and figure skating, and I took up inline skating. And I was, I loved to go partying. That's an office party there I went to. Um, I took up hang gliding. I really enjoyed hang gliding there for about eight years and um, then uh, did biking. Oh, I also worked once in a while. Uh, so you can see my life every moment of every day was occupied with some activity. But then the dream suddenly changed. It kind of lit up. It got really bright. And, and I looked up and there was Jesus coming in the clouds of glory in my dream. And it was so realistic. I woke up in terror because I thought it was real and I was lost. And that was the point of the dream. And I sat there in that beautiful darkness. And I remember saying, thank God, that was just a dream. It's not real. I'm, I know I'm lost, but there's still time. So I went back to sleep, got up, went about life the next day, and sometime later I had the same dream again. Friends, that became a recurring nightmare for about three years. Not every night or every week or every month, but when I least expected, I would be awakened in terror going through that same type of dream again and again and again. Do you think the Lord was trying to get my attention. He eventually did. After about three years, you know, Jonah, it took him three days. <laughs> for me, it was like three years. I was a hard nut to crack. But, you know, I think that's kind of biblical too, a day for a year, you know. Um, but after about three years, I remember it was about three years, I came to this realization one day I can keep on blaming God, which I was doing for everything wrong in my life. He made me this way. He didn't change me. He could have if he wanted to. I could blame him until he did come in the clouds of glory. I was still lost. And I realized blaming is not solving my problem. Um, blame is self-justification. In other words, you're forgiving yourself because it's his fault and her fault and their fault, God's fault. So God cannot justify you if you're busy justifying yourself. And so I stopped blaming. I said, you know, I, I really don't believe what I've been thinking and saying about God. I, that, it just doesn't make sense. 
I've got too much Bible knowledge and it, it just doesn't make sense. There's something I'm missing. And I decided to research my life because I started using some logic. You know, Isaiah 1 says, come now, let us reason together. I love that text of scripture. Let us reason together. And without even studying the word of God, I just began reasoning. It doesn't make sense that I was born gay. Why? Because my parents weren't gay or I wouldn't be here. And their parents weren't gay. And their parents weren't gay. Where would the gay come from? It didn't make any sense. And once gay, always gay, you know, as a Seventh-day Adventist in the past, I never believed once saved, always saved. Why would I believe once gay, always gay? It, didn't, it was not logical. To think that God could not change me did not make sense. I realized if God condemns something, and make note of this, if God condemns something, he has a solution. If he's condemning something in your life, it's because he has a solution and a better way. And it, it was just logical. So I decided to rehearse my life, and I went back and started connecting the dots from my childhood. I started realizing the, the molestation and the mocking and the teasing and the bullying and the alienation from my own gender. I was pushed into homosexuality. I was conditioned. I was derailed at the age of four. So I reasoned, why can't I be re-railed at the age of 40? It's logic, right? If you can be derailed, why can't you be re-railed? It was just logical. Well, how do you do that? Well, I realized I would have to search the Word of God and find answers. So I went to, I didn't go to a pastor or a church or a counselor. You know where I went. My Left Behind series. It was there. God was putting all of the answers right there in my house, year after year, just waiting to get my attention. The first thing I did was pull out that big, beautiful Bible. I saw one of these in, in the bookstore. It was a mission study Bible. Oklahoma Academy publishes these mission study Bibles, which is a, has the Ellen White uh, 7A commentary in it, and it's King James Version, and I opened it and looked at King James and thought, uh-uh. I can't, I can't be doing, I can't be reading this. I can't com concentrate on this. So I put it back. And then I saw the little one, the little book. You know what book that was, the little book? Steps to Christ. I said, I'll bet I could read this one. It's a little book, short chapters, big lettering. You know, I can read this one. I could not even read Steps to Christ. My mind was mush from being a TV addict all those years. Um, I couldn't concentrate. So I'm going to tell you what I did, and I don't recommend it. So you young people, I don't recommend it, but this is who I was and where I was and what I did. I said, I've got to relax if I'm going to concentrate. So I went to the kitchen, and I came back with a margarita. <laughs> Sat down, started drinking my margarita, lit up a cigarette, and I started relaxing. And then I turned to page one, Steps to Christ. Something wrong with that picture, right? <laughs> but that's exactly what I did. And I was trying to read page one, and then I realized there's something wrong with that picture, so I had a little talk with Jesus. <laughs> I said, God, I did not leave you over cigarettes and margaritas. I'm going to keep doing this, and I'm going to keep reading and see if you can show me the answers that I really, really need to the real issues. If you show me 
the answers to my real issues. Then we'll come back to the margaritas and cigarettes, okay? And I just picture Jesus saying, okay, we'll give it a try. <laughs> you know, these things cloud the mind, don't they? But for some reason, God broke through. I was in chapter 5 on consecration when I found myself snuffing out a perfectly good cigarette. That's a perfectly good one. Anyway, and what I was reading, some of you know what a perfectly good one is, right? It still has white on it. It's, you know, there's still tobacco there. It's perfectly good. But I was reading, and I've just summarized, that, that God's plan for my life far exceeded anything I could imagine for myself. There's nothing he asks of me that is not for my own good, for my own health, my own joy and happiness and fulfillment. It was logical. It made sense. And I stopped smoking while reading Steps to Christ. But <laughs> that was a step. Some of you caught that. Anyway, as I continue studying, that little book opened up my mind and cultivated my spirituality again to where I could go to the other ones. And in the next few months, I don't know how long it was, I devoured all of it. That whole Bible, all the commentary, the nine-volume set, the five-volume set, Story of Redemption, Steps to Christ, all of it. And those are just some that I remember. I learned that Jesus was tempted in all points like as me, yet without sin. And I realized that temptation does not equal sin. And I did not have to be identified by the nature of my temptations. People are always saying, are you ever tempted that way anymore? I say, what's your point? Well, then you'd be the same. You're still gay. I said, is that what you'd call Jesus? He was tempted in all points like as me. I've not been tempted in all points like you. But, you know, temptation doesn't define who I am. What defines who I am? The choices I make, the direction I'm choosing to go. It doesn't matter how I'm tempted. That, that's not the point. Jesus was tempted. Um, and not only that, he suffered or he struggled being tempted. And any of you that have ever worked out in a gym, I see some of you have, okay, you know that resistance training, yeah, you, resistance training makes you strong, right, Carrie? Right, all right. Resistance training makes you strong. It's okay to suffer. It's okay to struggle. If you're not struggling with temptation, what are you doing? Giving in, right? I could do a whole sermon on that, but I won't. Uh, not only did he suffer being tempted, he resisted under blood striving against sin. Jesus chose to die rather than yield to temptation. I have not been asked to do that, but millions of martyrs over the years have chosen, just like Jesus, to die rather than betray their Lord. And so they, not only did Jesus demonstrate it, the martyrs that have preceded us have demonstrated as well. No, they don't have all the light that we have today, but their hearts were perfect. If they're willing to die for what they do have, that, that they're safe to take to heaven. So I learned if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are be passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And in the commentary in that Bible on that verse, it says the new birth consists in having new motives and new tastes and new tendencies. And a genuine conversion changes both hereditary 
and cultivated tendencies to wrong. Can you imagine I'm a gay person reading that I can have new tendencies? Even if they're hereditary. Now science proves that the gay gene is not real. There is no such thing. It's not a birth thing. But even if it were, this covers it. That the new birth consists uh, and a genuine conversion changes both hereditary and cultivated tendencies to wrong. I don't need to go through all of the things that I studied um, to come to the point of being born again, but eventually I got to where I was ready to be born again. I was so convicted and so um, enthralled with the idea of leaving the gay life, except I was in my fourth lifetime relationship. You've heard of a cat with nine lives. <laughs> I was on number four. Um, and uh, I, uh, I didn't want to hurt this person. The gay life is a life of hurting people. When I went into that life, I hurt my wife. I hurt my children. I hurt my parents. I hurt people that wanted to be with me, and people hurt me that I wanted to be with. And, and you get into relationships, and they leave you for somebody else. That's hurt. It's rejection. There is so much rejection in the gay culture. And every gay person I've ever known deals with or has been dealing with perceptions of rejection. And it's much more profound in the gay culture than outside of it. Um, I did not want to hurt this person. I'd hurt too many people. And so I had a real struggle. How am I going to accept Jesus and not hurt this person? Now that puts a lot of people into a conundrum, you know, trying to figure that out. Well, here's how I was able to do it. I prayed that the Lord would take care of it. But it's almost like he said, we tried that once because I had done that once before. I said, Lord, if, you, if you'll just end this relationship, if you'll take care of it and get him out of here, I'll never go back to the briar patch again, right? Don't throw me in the briar patch, that type of thing. I'll never, never. Two weeks later, I was looking for another relationship. So it's like the Lord saying, no, we've done it that way before. You're going to have to peck your way out of this. And I'll be there. I'll give you strength. I'll give you courage. I'll give you encouragement. But you have to do it. I'm not doing it. It's like the eaglet pecking his way out of an egg. If you help him too much, he'll not survive. So the Lord was there to give me strength, but I had to do it. And I remember I had to, I got to the point in studying Jesus that I got to where I loved him more than him. Does that make sense? When I developed a relationship to where I loved Jesus more, then it's a matter of following my heart, right? And so I, I, I couldn't stay in the relationship, and I had to break up, and I did. The poor guy went into a frenzy. It's like he became demon-possessed. I mean, he, he turned on me with vengeance of seven demons, I truly believe, and could easily have killed me uh, with everything he hit me over the head with and in the face with. The Lord let me go through that, and I think it was for a reason, because when I turned my back on that life, it was to never go back. I was done. It revealed to me that what I was really dealing with was Satan. And if Satan could no longer keep me in his grasp, lure me, entice me, deceive me, and, and coerce and all that, he would turn to violence. And the violence was really bad. And I realized later, Satan would like to have killed me before I could be baptized. 
before I could have truly gone all the way with the Lord. The Lord let me go through that, but he spared my life. And it just brought down a wall. That's it. I'm done. In my head, I made a mental decision. No matter how delectable the fruit on that forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, it's off limits. It's not an option. Um, it's, uh, it's the wrong tree. So I hung it on the wrong on the forbidden tree. I did that mental exercise, turned my back and walked away. That doesn't mean without temptation, but it does mean I was equipped to deal with temptation. I ended up leaving, just very quickly leaving Southern California. I left almost everything behind and I moved in with my parents in Arkansas. That's why I'm in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. They had just moved there to retire and I moved in with them. No job, no money. How humiliating. 40 years old and moving in with mom and dad. No job, no money. But then, you know, the first time I was born, I had no job and no money. Born again, no job, no money. It was a good thing. Totally dependent upon my parents, just like the first time I was born. And I'll tell you what, my parents were so supportive so encouraging. They did everything to help me, uh, sustain me in my new walk with the Lord. I felt right away a call to ministry, and I was shocked at that. But it was like the Lord said, you have your degree in theology, you've turned your back on the world, it's time to go to work. And I, I just thought, how in the world would I do that? Um, I could take my application to the conference office, I could show them my diploma, but Gary, I'm sure they'd want to see my resume, right? I, I was not going to show anybody my resume. <laughs> so I said, Lord, how in the, I can't be in ministry. How in the world would this ever happen? And then I came across in my study this passage in Mark 5, 19, with the demoniacs. Jesus told the demoniacs, go home to your friends, tell them all the Lord has done for you and had compassion on you. And they did. The day they were delivered, they were commissioned. I thought, wow, well, I can do that. And so I wrote a letter. I wrote out my testimony, about three pages. It's now like maybe 300, something, I don't know. Anyway, three pages. I mailed it out to everybody I knew, every address I could find. And you know something, two weeks later, I got a phone call from my best friend from high school. We had left the church together. I mean, opposite directions, but we were best friends anyway. And if any two people were never going to make it to heaven, he was the other one. And two weeks later, he's saying, Ron, I got your letter, and I'm impressed, and I think it's time for me to come home too. And he did. And he became a pastor in Florida, and I ended up pastoring in Arkansas, Louisiana. I realized with that letter that he that the Lord could use me. And then I gave my father the letter to read. And as he's reading, he's chuckling and that kind of concerned me. And so I interrupted him and said, Dad, why are you laughing at that letter? And he said, uh, no, no. He said, look right here, page one you wrote, the Lord gave me no rest, day in or night. I said, why, why, is, why is that funny? He said, well, your mother and I prayed for 16 years, the Lord would give you no rest, day nor night. <laughs> There's, there's our prayer on page one, and your letters are, te is, you know, it, your testimony is our answer. He was laughing for joy. Notice 16 years 
You get that? The man whose heart I felt I had literally broken was now laughing for joy. That's the point of that. And here he is with his prodigal son. I love that picture. I just found that when my mother passed away this last year. Came across that picture. Both of my parents were so excited that I was back. How am I going to finish this in five minutes? I had four prayers that I prayed because I knew the Lord wanted me in ministry. Lord, would you, if you want me to be in ministry, you make it happen. I'll just say yes. And would you please bless me with a double portion of your Holy Spirit if I go into ministry? And would you ever trust me again with family? And would you restore the gift of music? And see if I can answer it real quick. The night I was baptized, I wasn't baptized right away because I was still struggling with those perfectly good little cigarettes, you know. And um, I wanted to wait till I was over that before I was baptized. But I was praying all those prayers. I was preparing anyway. The very night I was baptized, a minister was there and he came to me and said, uh, Ron, would you, would you preach at my church next Sabbath? And I've been in the pulpit ever since, February 7, 1992. The night I was baptized, the Lord was just waiting for me to take that step. And then he launched me in the ministry immediately. Um, and, you know, when you're baptized of the water, you're also to be baptized of the Spirit, right? Um, within that year, I was asked to be a lay pastor at a new church in Arkansas, and we had a camp meeting there. There's a fellow who came to me and said, um, Pastor Ron, if God can save you, he can save anybody. I said, why would you say that? He said, well, this guy over here, he's telling me all about your past, this gossiper was telling all about my past that he thought he knew. So he, the gossiper is talking about me, but the gossipy is hearing about the power of Jesus. So the gossiper was malicious, but the gossipy came to me and said, if God can save you, he can save anybody. Would you baptize me at the end of the camp meeting? I call that the gospel according to gossip. And I baptized that young man at the end of the camp meeting. And as we were turning to get out of the pool, my dad walked in fully dressed, saying, Ronnie baptized me too. I was shocked, and I wanted to question him, but you don't need to be arguing with your dad in a baptismal pool. So as we were walking away after the baptism, I asked him, Dad, what was that all about? And he said, Ronnie, I want what you have. What did I have? That was affirmation that he saw the Holy Spirit working in my life in a way he wanted for himself. There was a young lady that came to that camp meeting, prayer number three. A young lady that came to that camp meeting. We'd known each other since childhood. She was in grade school when I met her, and I was in high school, and I wasn't interested. Um, my sisters were her friends and brought all their grade school girls' friends around to meet their high school brothers. She was in the eighth grade. I was in the ninth grade. That just didn't mix, you know, grade school and high school. Well, here she is. She lost her husband. She's there with her son. She's at that camp meeting. By the end of the camp meeting, she agreed to go with me on a date back to Little Creek Academy for homecoming. Our camp meeting was October 22. Two weeks later, we went back to Academy for homecoming. That was our one date. I brought my sister. She's never let me forget that I brought my sister on our weekend date. We had to have a chaperone, right? Um, my sister came into my room one morning and said, Claudia said something last night I shouldn't tell you. And I don't know why you women do that kind of stuff, because <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, if we men don't want to tell you something, we're not going to bring it up. <laughs> right? 
But she couldn't help herself. I don't know whether I, I shouldn't tell you, but she told me something. Oh, well, I'll tell you anyway, she said. Last night, Claudia said, I don't know what your brother's up to, but I wish he'd hurry up. <laughs> Two weeks later, she came back to Arkansas at my invitation for Thanksgiving. I took her for a long walk in the woods and proposed to her. And she started laughing. And I was not expecting that because I, I was expecting <laughs> hurry up. We'd known each other since eighth grade, ninth grade, you know, 30 years. She just said, Ronnie, I always knew you were slow, but I never knew it'd take you 30 years. I've been in love with you since the eighth grade. So there you have it. Six weeks later, we plan to have our wedding on New Year's Eve, a night we can never forget because the whole world celebrates every hour on the hour. So, you know, we have that. I showed up at the well, as I was getting ready to go to the church in Madison, by the way, she's Claudia Sutherland. Her grandfather, great-grandfather is E.A. Sutherland. It started Madison. Um, she said, there's a marimba set up here at the church. I want you to play for our wedding. And I hadn't done that for years, you know. I'd just been dancing. I hadn't been playing music. But she insisted, so I showed up at the church, and there was this marimba, and I brought some music, and I... The next day, I was playing for our wedding, the Lord's Prayer, the Blessed House, songs like that. And uh, there it is. The Lord is good, right? I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. What I read in that Steps to Christ, chapter 5, on, on uh, consecration was true. My life has been so much better uh, with God on my side than being in the world. Two years later, the Lord was still answering prayers. We had a midwife visiting. We weren't expecting to be expecting, but she was expecting anyway. And the midwife thought we were going to have twins. And our mothers assured us there were twins on both sides of our family we never knew anything about. Claudia pointed her finger at me, and she was dead serious when she said, Ronnie, it's time for you to stop praying for second chances and double portions. <laughs> A few months later, Zachary was born. He was not a twin. Uh, that was a false alarm. And 19 months later, Natalie was born. She was not a twin either. 19 months later, we were due for another one. But Claudia got very ill with a convulsive-type cough. And after two weeks of that, the pregnancy was terminated. And we discovered she was carrying triplets. So we lost triplets. And we buried them there by the dogwood tree under the dogwood tree by our driveway. That's where we want to be on resurrection morning because we're claiming those three for eternity. Can you imagine raising three perfect children? No sass, no back talk, no disobedience. <laughs> and can you imagine being the perfect parents? You know, I think it's going to be wonderful. This is Zachary as he's preparing for graduation from Southern, Natalie graduating. Um, my stepson, Derek, and his little boy um, had a liver transplant at the age of 15 months, had cancer as a baby. He's now 13 and an extreme mountain bike enthusiast. And there they are again. But people want to know about the first children. So I'll just show you real quickly. My oldest daughter, um, 48, and Zachary's 28. I tell people I was 10 when she was born, but they don't buy that. But she's 40, 48 and... Um, this is her son, Melanie, and my wife, Claudia, were pregnant at the same time. And so I have a grandson and a son, both 28. <laughs> it's interesting. 
And this is my oldest son, David, and he's 46, and Natalie's 26. So that's interesting, the dynamics there in his little family. Um, and uh, they live in Calistoga, California. Uh, time changes things. And, but I, I do want to have a real quick quiz uh, to close out here. My parents, dad was given how many years to live? I didn't tell you how old he was when he had the heart attack. He was 55. Okay. So he was to be dead by 60. And he has passed away now. Guess how old he was? Uh, he was 90. And you put the pencil to the math, 90. The Lord gave him 35 years. The surgeons gave him five. The Lord gave him seven times five by following the health message. I think that's neat, neat math, don't you? My mother just passed away this last year. She was 95. Um, they were such loving, loving parents to the very end. Um, I like the way the Apostle Paul talks about his ministry. He marveled that the Lord put someone like him in the ministry. Um, and uh, he said, who was before a blasphemer, persecutor, injurious. He claimed ignorance, that what he did was ignorant and unbelief. And he was a part of the general conference. Um, but, but it's true. He thought he was doing the Lord's service by reading the church of heres heretics. And, uh, but he goes on to say, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And here's why. For this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should be hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul's conversion was an extreme conversion, and I contend that an extreme conversion simply reveals an extreme God. He's not impotent after all. He is omnipotent. Extreme love, extreme compassion, extreme mercy, and extreme power, not willing that any should perish. I believe God is love. He specializes in reaching the unreachable, changing the unchangeable. Nothing is impossible with him. He's mighty to save the whosoever's from whatsoever, even to the uttermost. I've been getting hand signals and I've been ignoring them. <laughs> so forgive me. Um, but I think it is probably, I have no idea what time it is, but let's stand and have a word of prayer. And we will have times for questions and answers on Friday. So make sure you write down your questions. Um, there's so much that we would like to share with you, but time does have its limitations. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you truly are a God of love, that you um, are not willing that any should perish. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You have the answers. We all have concerns about loved ones and friends that are wandering in the valley of the lost sheep, perhaps in the LGBT community uh, or other different uh, sin addictions. But Lord, you do have not only the answers, you have the power. And we just lift up all of these loved ones that we have on our hearts and commit them to your keeping. And we ask you at this point to persistently pursue each and every one of them because we know you're not willing that any should perish and you love them more than we do. I pray your blessing upon everyone here that um, you will give them great courage and great hope as they think about 
the challenges that they may have in their own personal lives or with loved ones that they care